0: Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, Explorers. I'm Pamela Ricchia, and this is episode number 228 of the podcast. It's the 19th of May, 2020, as I record this intro. And this week on the podcast, I'm sharing the third and final part of the audiobook recording of my book, Free to Learn, Five Ideas for a Joyful Unschooling Life. As I mentioned last week, if you haven't read it yet, this is an opportunity to learn more about the paradigm-changing ideas that I found to be truly fundamental on my unschooling journey. And if you have read it, I think it'll still be wonderful to revisit. You're in a different place on your unschooling journey now you peeled back some layers and have fresh eyes and new experiences to bring to it. New things will likely jump out and connect for you, things that passed by unnoticed before. First published in 2012, over the years, Free to Learn has been translated into four languages, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and Hungarian. I'll put the links in the show notes to where you can pick those up if you're interested or would like to share. As a personal update, lately, and probably inspired by the worldwide pause we find ourselves in, I've been pondering the different pieces of living joyfully and how they weave together. Over the years, I've always followed what I was drawn to. So there's this podcast, there's writing and publishing books through my Forever Curious press imprint, there's the Childhood Redefined Online Summit I created with Anna Brown and Aunt Omen. There's my website archive of blog posts, previously published magazine articles, and all the talks from the six years that I hosted the Toronto Unschooling Conference. And now the Living Joyfully Network, the online community I started up a couple months ago with Anna Brown. All the seemingly disparate things. So for years, I just figured I couldn't focus on one thing and left it at that. But as I've been contemplating it all, the bigger picture of how all these things weave together beyond just being unschooling related has become clearer because my brain is always the last to know these things. (laughs) You probably realize this already, but I really do love to focus on the parent's personal unschooling journey, your journey, my journey. I'm realizing this on a deeper level now. And on our unschooling journeys, we all truly do learn in different ways. That's a foundational unschooling idea. And all these different things that I've been drawn to, it's about sharing relevant information, ideas, and insights in different ways. So producing podcasts, which is about sharing personal stories. Publishing books, which is about sharing bigger picture ideas and building an online community, which is about growing connections. (laughs) They all weave together so beautifully. And it hit me that instinctively, I've been trying to cultivate a rich and varied environment for parents to learn more about how unschooling works and to feel less alone on the journey. As I said, my brain is so often in catch-up mode. I learned years ago to follow what I'm drawn to, trusting that I'll figure out the why later. (laughs) like this, maybe years later. And I learned that from watching unschooling in action with my kids. It's so much easier to see the threads looking back. If I waited until I understand everything before I even get started, I would hardly start anything. (laughs) So that's been my recent aha moment. For now, I'm just savoring it and growing curious to discover what might bubble up from here. And before we get to the book, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. And a big welcome to new patron, Amy Cannon. Hi, Amy. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support not only lets me know that you enjoy the show and want it to continue, it allows me to spend time creating episodes each week and to keep the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now let's listen to the third and final part of my book, Free to Learn. Idea 4. Instead of No. Unschooling Paradigm. Why not yes? Mainstream paradigm. It is important for parents to set boundaries for their children, and a definitive no helps the parents stay in control. Paradigm shift. Saying no can make life seem easier in the moment, but saying yes encourages children to explore their world and cultivates their ability to live confidently in it. The reflex almost automatic no accomplishes so much. It reminds the child where the power in the relationship sits. It discourages messes and inconvenience for the parent. And eventually it deters the child from bothering the parent in the first place. But what if those aren't your goals? Analyzing situations. Tammy is watching her favorite kids show and they demonstrate how to make a paper bag puppet. She loves the idea and runs into the kitchen. Mommy, can we make a puppet? I saw how to do it on TV. We need a brown paper bag and the glue and some paper and some scissors and I'll go get my crayons. As you continue scrubbing the leftovers from the pot, you answer, No, I'm busy right now, Tammy. When she begs, Please, Mom! You reply, When I'm done, honey. As usual, it takes longer than you expect. And when you finally finish, you notice it's getting late and start making dinner. After you all eat, now a couple hours after Tammy first asked, you offer to make a puppet with Tammy, but she responds, no thanks. An automatic no to a child's request shuts down the path they were following, the connections they were making, and thus the learning that was happening in that moment. Typical parenting advice often touts the importance of maintaining boundaries for your child, and the no answer seems to be the easiest way for most parents to feel like they've accomplished that but at what cost? Being a gatekeeper to a child's activities keeps the relationship bound up in power. As the child gets older, requests can become more about the power struggle than the activity itself and the relationship suffers. Would you rather be a parent that supports their child's interests as much as possible? One who helps their child to explore the world? Do you prefer to see you and your child as a team working together? If so, then give your child's requests full consideration. An automatic yes is just as thoughtless as a reflex no, but it is worth your time to ask yourself, why not? Opening yourself up to the possibilities allows your child to explore what they find interesting, to learn more, and it gives you the opportunity to have some fun too. Kids come up with some amazing ideas. So, take a breath and allow that automatic no to echo in your head for a beat. Then ask yourself, why not? Critically examine the answers that pop into your head. It's too messy. It'll take too long. I'm too busy. It could be dangerous. Ask yourself follow-up questions to see if you're experiencing a knee-jerk reaction or whether the no holds up under examination. Hmm, we could paint over a tarp in the basement. We could start a game of Monopoly and leave it set up on the table to finish later. He seems really excited to do this puzzle together. The dishes will still be there when we're done. I could stand underneath as she plays on the monkey bars. As you begin seeing the possibilities beyond the no, mention them to your child and see if you can come up with a plan that both of you are happy with. As it gets easier to move past the reflex no, you can move more directly into a conversation with your child about how to achieve what she's after, or just reply with a happy yes and get to the fun. The more you are able to help your child accomplish and explore what piques her interest, the more your child will learn about herself and the world. Rules versus Principles Picking up the discarded wrapping paper from Bill's birthday gifts, you hear laughter coming from the living room. Curious, you poke your head around the corner just in time to see him tossing his new ball to his brother. No throwing balls in the house, you say sternly. They stop immediately and both look contrite as you turn to go. But noticing them both intently watching you as you leave the room, you decide it's best to take the ball with you, certain they were going to start up again as soon as you left. Firm rules encourage knee-jerk, no responses to children's questions and actions. Rules are often used as shortcuts, substitutes for thinking in the moment. Parents often fall back on them to avoid the need to evaluate each situation individually. And it can be tempting to pass these rules down to children as edicts rather than logical, thought-out conclusions. As a result, from a child's point of view, the rules often seem arbitrary. By relying on rules to respond to questions, you rob a child of the opportunity to analyze the situation and come to their own understanding and conclusion. You rob them of the opportunity to learn more about the world. On the other hand, guiding principles allow you and your child to discuss situations together and to come up with unique solutions for each particular circumstance. Principles encourage discussion and evaluation of a situation, whereas rules shut discussion down. In my experience, parents learn interesting things as well in these discussions. We learn more about ourselves through sharing our thoughts and experiences. We learn more about our children and their interests, about what they are thinking and what is motivating them. All great things. Let's look at the situation above. What if you did not immediately jump to the rule? Instead, you could pause, take a breath, and ask yourself, why not? If in that moment you realize there is no real risk to them playing catch in the room, smile and take a moment to breathe in their fun, or better yet, join in the game. If you have concerns, share them. Guys, there's some breakable stuff in here that I would like to keep safe. A Principle. Now you have a starting point for conversation. Can you go outside to play catch? If they reply, no, that won't work, keep going. You could ask them why. You might learn from their answers that right now Tom doesn't like playing active games when it's so hot outside or that it's raining and you hadn't noticed. After a moment, they may change their minds and want to play catch out in the rain or not. You could ask them if they have any ideas where they could play catch without risk of breaking things or suggest another spot. How about playing in the basement? Or maybe they suggest moving the lamps to the corner out of the way. If you think that'll work, you have a solution. If not, keep going. What do the kids learn in these scenarios? In the rule-based don't throw balls in the house scenario, they are introduced to or reminded of the rule. The focus is on stopping them from playing catch. They don't learn the reasoning behind the rule. If they guess that it is so things won't get broken, they might conclude the rule is dumb. They can throw things around in the basement without breaking anything, so not in the house is just silly. But frustration because they have to to stop playing likely deters them from even analyzing the situation at all. Next time they want to play catch in the house, they'll remember the previous incident and be sure to check that there are no parents nearby. In the principle-based take-care-of-our-stuff scenario, once someone is uncomfortable with what is happening, the children and parents analyze the situation together and work to find a solution. In this scenario, the focus is on helping them do what they want, to play catch. Everyone is working toward finding a way they can continue playing catch while taking care to minimize the risk of breaking things. They gain experience in analyzing a situation and considering the possibilities. Next time they want to play catch, there's a good chance they'll remember the conversation and choose a spot accordingly. See how the rule shuts down thinking and learning while the principal opens it up? Which one is more supportive of the parent-child relationship? Which parent would you rather be around? Moving to principles. Jade looks up, her eyes wide. Really? No more rules? You can see the intense concentration as she ponders the idea. I can play on the computer as long as I want. You smile and reply, yes. She asks, I can sleep in my favorite dress? Sure, if you want to, you agree. She turns and slowly wanders down the hall, shaking her head with a mixture of wonder and confusion. As you begin seeing the advantage of living life as a family from the perspective of principles instead of rules, it can be tempting to excitedly announce to your children that you have decided to toss the rules. Just as an automatic yes is as thoughtless as a knee-jerk no, Chucking the rules out the window all at once for children used to them can create a free-for-all situation that doesn't support anyone. It can get downright miserable. Imagine being Jade for a moment, a child who, until today, has been told to clean her plate before dessert, not throw balls in the house, go to bed at 8 o'clock, and get dressed after breakfast. Imagine that you've been told these rules are for your own good because your parents love you and want the best for you. Even if you've been unhappy with the rules, what are you going to think if your parents suddenly declare that these rules no longer apply? Might you worry that they no longer care what you do? That they no longer want the best for you? No longer love you? Or maybe you'll shout, cool, and think you have to take advantage of this opportunity before they change their minds. In your zeal, you eat ice cream for breakfast five days straight, stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning play wildly and break some of your favorite toys and finally collapse in a screaming mess on the living room floor before the end of the first week. This doesn't give you a chance to be yourself either. How instead can you approach this paradigm shift from no to yes, from rules to principles, so it doesn't turn your family life into chaos? Slowly and steadily over time, probably over a few months situation by situation. Instead of watching the clock and announcing that it's time to go to bed, wait until they ask if they can stay up to watch the end of the movie. Then you can answer, sure, I'm enjoying it too. Let's go to bed when it's over. Or think ahead and don't start the movie that night. Let's watch the movie tomorrow because we need to wake up early in the morning to go to the zoo. Make it less about arbitrary rules and more about considering what you're all doing in the moment and beyond. Share your thoughts more so they begin to see how you think about and analyze situations. As this analysis becomes the typical way of addressing questions, you will all find you rely on rules less and less until they just aren't part of your family life any longer. This paradigm shift begins to fundamentally change your concept of living together. You're no longer just related and living under the same roof, but growing together, living together as a team, helping and supporting each other, and respecting each other, regardless of age. Idea 5. Living Together Unschooling paradigm. Kids are people too. Mainstream paradigm. The parents' needs and wants are more important than the children's. Paradigm shift. It can seem that parents have, by virtue of age and childbirth, earned a position of power, but everyone in the family has important needs and wants and can have a voice. Children are often the second-class citizens of the family. Does giving them a voice in the family lead to chaos? How can we help them learn about themselves and how to live with others? Learning to live with others. A loud crash spurs you downstairs in time to hear Max scream at his younger sister, Why did you knock over my blocks? In between sobs, Lisa says, I want to play with them too. Quickly sizing up the situation, you ask Max to share the blocks with his sister. Mom, no! I need all the blocks for my tower. As Lisa's cries grow louder, you try reasoning with him. Max, you two played with the blocks together yesterday. Please share some of the blocks with Lisa. Max groans in frustration and losing patience, you issue an ultimatum. Do what you're told or I'll put the blocks away so nobody can play with them. As you've worked to take a moment to check in with yourself when your child asks to do something, you've probably found that there are often ways to support your child's exploration and learning by saying yes, even if you are initially thinking, no way. Looking at situations analytically pushes the less relevant pieces of information to the back of your mind, and you'll probably notice that the typical societal cries of you're too young and because I said so are some of the first defaults to erode. They are power-based responses that separate parents and children by virtue of age and family position without consideration for the actual situation at hand. Instead, through conversations with your child, you begin seeing her as a person with ideas and feelings and goals, albeit with less life experience. Sometimes that works in her favor as she is keen to pursue her goals and will continue moving forward even when we, as parents with more experience, envision disappointment and caution against action. I have been surprised enough times by seeing things work out in the end to have learned to consider carefully whether to voice negative opinions. In my experience, as I released the need for control over my children, They, in turn, picked up responsibility for themselves. As we began working together as a team and their trust in me grew, the need and struggle for power in our relationship faded away. We became collaborators, together figuring out ways to accomplish all of our goals. If your family is currently living within a power and rules paradigm, this can seem like a pipe dream. An invitation for wild behavior and disaster to visit. Last chapter, I talked about moving slowly but resolutely toward dropping rules and focusing on principles. Discussion is a vital tool supporting principle-based living. As conflicts arise, drop the parental power paradigm and instead of reaching for a rule, start a conversation about the situation with those involved. Through these family discussions, you will begin building trust in your relationships with your children. They will build trust that you will listen to them and genuinely consider and incorporate their input. You will build trust that they are genuinely expressing their needs, not trying to take advantage of you. You will all gain confidence that the time spent to explore everyone's needs and discover a satisfying solution for everyone Is time well spent? In a power and rules paradigm, each family member is fighting for their share of the power. I want to play with the blocks. Even if the child doesn't really mind, they feel compelled to stake their boundaries, exert their power. Compromising with a sibling or parent can feel like an expression of weakness that may be used against them the next time. You guys played with the blocks together yesterday. It takes time to move through that outlook to a team-based one where the children and parents feel respected enough to release their need to feel powerful, trusting other family members to not take advantage of them. Relinquishing power is a slow process that is replaced by trust in each other. In this, the parents must lead by example. Show your children that you are willing to give all family members a voice in discussing current family issues and upcoming plans. Understand that at first your children may sense this as a display of weakness and try to take advantage of you by pushing for things that aren't overly important to them, but that make them feel powerful within the family. They may suspect you will change your mind soon and reexert your power through rules and may push to take advantage while they have the chance. However, over time, as they see you taking their needs seriously and not struggling against them, see you are no longer fighting for power in the relationship, see you are sticking with this new way of parenting, they will begin feeling comfortable being themselves. They will slowly begin to relax drop the posturing, and to bring to the discussion only the things that truly matter to them. They will no longer feel the need to demand five things in hopes of getting the two they really want. They will feel comfortable in just asking for those two, trusting, knowing that you will do your best to help satisfy those two needs. Everyone begins feeling safe in being themselves, losing the need to project a tough exterior, to fight for their share of the power and consideration in the family. The shift from manipulative power-based relationships to a sincere team-based approach where everyone feels heard and supported takes time, but is incredibly satisfying for everyone involved. The sense of family that grows out of this process is extraordinary. These skills Listening to others' concerns, understanding and expressing our needs, analyzing alternatives, and narrowing in on a path forward that meets everyone's needs are invaluable and will be prized for life in all endeavors. Learning about themselves. It's 8.30, time to go to bed. Sally is downstairs pretending she didn't hear you. Nate has no such luck, so he tries another task. Can I just watch the end of the show, please? No, Nate, you stayed up last night. Tonight, it's to bed on time. Trying yet another strategy, he pronounces he's hungry. Can I have a snack? You sigh as you lean over the staircase to call to Sally. This happens every night. We've seen that the freedom to pursue interests and make choices encourages our children to learn. Freedom works so well in the academic realm of learning that extending it into the realm of learning about living seems natural. Learning about themselves, their personal eating and sleeping needs, and how they prefer their living environment arranged. As you gain experience seeing the learning your children are doing every day, in every situation, your comfort level grows with the concept that the learning is in the living. The lines between living and learning blur, soon to be erased altogether. It's life. You've probably started considering some of these ideas on your own as you pondered the rules versus principles paradigm shift. You may have begun questioning bedtimes and times based on the clock instead of the people and events involved. Sleeping arrangements based on current societal norms, food restrictions based on the good and bad judgments, and set chores based solely on the parent's needs without the consideration of all family members. Let's look at bedtimes. There are lots of great reasons for a person to get enough sleep, most notably health and mood. But who defines enough? And does it need to happen during a set time frame? The person best able to define enough is the person doing the sleeping. Regardless of when they go to sleep, they will sleep until they wake up. They are the best judge of how they feel. Awake, tired, exhausted, sharp, cranky, or mellow. As a parent, you can help them explore sleep and its relationship to mood and health by talking with them about it, about your experiences, what you observe, and helping them make their own personal connections. When I mention talking with your child, I don't necessarily mean a targeted, sit-down, serious, let's-talk-about-sleep-now conversation where you explain in point form all the important reasons for sleep and ask your child to whip up their own sleeping schedule right now, please. Instead, maybe a quick mention of the connection between illness recovery and sleeping as your child naps on the couch while fighting the flu. The brief acknowledgement of a comment, as they make a connection between their feelings of frustration and level of tiredness. Do they want to sit down and talk about sleep in a more direct way? Go for it. Follow your child's lead. How do they want to learn more about it? Over the years, they will experience staying up late, sleeping in, getting up early, being tired, sleeping soundly, sleeping fitfully. It's all part of life. And with all these situations, they will learn how their body feels and gain experience in how their reactions serve them. Did a nap help? Going earlier to bed? Do they need a few days to shift their sleeping patterns? Do they feel best after seven, eight, nine hours of sleep? In addition, you can talk about upcoming plans so they are working with the full picture as they choose when to go to bed. Do you plan on getting up early tomorrow to go to the science center or to visit friends? Figure out together what time you want to leave in the morning and suggest they may want to get to bed by such and such a time for a full night's sleep based on whatever they feel a full night is for them. And if they don't follow your suggestion, don't fret. Maybe you'll learn that your child can wake up and enjoy an exciting day out after less sleep than usual. Maybe your child will learn that they don't have as much fun when they're out and about but tired. Or maybe you'll all decide to postpone the trip to another day. Or, if it's a firm commitment, maybe you can help them get to sleep more easily with a familiar movie in a darkened room cuddled in a blanket. So many choices. In any given situation, the learning may not be what you first expect, but there is useful learning nonetheless. And remember, it may take a number of repeat experiences until your child draws certain conclusions and incorporates them into their decision-making. It is human nature to retest a hypothesis. The lack of an arbitrary bedtime does not mean the absence of a bedtime routine if that's something your child enjoys. Many children, especially younger ones, find a bedtime routine helpful in settling down for sleep. A bath, fresh pajamas, a story or three. If you notice they are getting tired and are amenable, start the routine to wind down. Other children prefer going until they drop or hanging out quietly with their parents until they drift off to sleep. Understanding how they prefer getting to sleep is a useful lifelong skill, and it may look nothing like how you prefer to welcome slumber. So far, we've discussed the when of sleeping. How about the where? What do you think of the societal expectation that children sleep in their own bed, in their own room, from a very early age? What are your goals regarding sleep and your family? That everyone get the best quality sleep? Is that more important than where they happen to be when they get it? If your child sleeps better with you near, a family bed might be a great solution. Or maybe more of a sleeping room configuration with a mattress on the floor in your room so you are still nearby. A child that feels loved and supported and has a good night's sleep is in a much better frame of mind for pursuing all the living and learning that the new day will bring. Let's move from sleep to food. The same concepts regarding bedtimes also apply to mealtimes. It is better for our health to respond to our unique body's needs rather than to be led by a clock. Eat when your body is hungry, not when it is 8 or 12 or 6 o'clock. Allow your child and yourself the space to listen to what your body is telling you. Everything above about bedtimes applies to mealtimes as well. The best person to define hungry or full is the person doing the eating. Mealtime routines may be enjoyed by some. The experiences of eating too much, too little, being hungry, feeling nauseated, noticing food that makes them feel good, or food that they react negatively to, and more, will give them information to figure out how they and food work together. It's all part of life and learning. The principle of listening to your body's needs applies logically to both sleeping and eating. Now, let's delve deeper into another aspect of food, what they eat. Food advice is shouted almost fanatically from many corners, health organizations, food producers, children's groups, food sellers, and most of it is trying to convince you to control food rigorously. There's good food, bad food, junk food, fat-free food, low-carb food, comfort food. Food nicknames evoke an emotional response in an effort to control your food dollar. You feel like a good parent when you say no to your child's request for a bag of chips or another pop and instead give your child a good snack of carrots and yogurt dip. But are you really helping your child develop healthy eating habits by restricting their access to things you deem unacceptable? Have you thought it through yourself, or are you accepting the messages that are flying around? Do you follow the same eating habits you impose on your children? Is it a challenge? It can be difficult because you are setting yourself and your child up against human nature. It is human nature to want what is restricted. Think about it. For lunch, you are sitting in front of a nice big salad and you can eat as much of it as you want. On a side dish, you also have two of your favorite cookies to enjoy, but no more. What do your thoughts revolve around as you sit down to eat? Most likely the cookies. Should I eat them first, last, interspersed with the salad? Why do they live at the forefront of your mind during your meal? Because they are restricted and as such gain a special status. You only get two, so you have to think and plan around them to get the most satisfaction possible from those two cookies. Why think of the salad when you can have as much of that as you like? No thinking required. When my children were younger, I did restrict their access to sugary treats, as recommended by so many parenting books and articles. Doesn't the nickname make them sound even more appealing? Inevitably, when there was a box of cookies or chocolate around, it seemed an almost unending round of requests and refusals. No wonder parents imagine that without restrictions, that's all their children would eat. But I found, as other unschooling parents I know have before me, once the artificial restriction is lifted and access is free, that it becomes just one of many choices. This allows other factors to come into play am I hungry? Do I actually fancy something sweet? Will some protein hit the spot better? These are much more useful questions to ask yourself, rather than just trying to eat as much of something as you can get away with. Don't be surprised, though, if they binge at first with the joy of access to previously restricted food. Again, they'll likely want to take advantage of the opportunity, unsure how long it will last. Once that fear diminishes, forbidden fruits lose their lofty status, and children are free to listen to their body's needs instead. Back to the principle of learning and following your body's unique needs. There is a third aspect to eating. Where? As a family, how important is this aspect? Must all food be eaten at the kitchen table? Why? Is your child busily engaged with their passion, yet also hungry? Do they ask if they can eat their sandwich while they continue their activity? Check in with yourself. What's your goal? To get their basic physiological need for food met? That can be met anywhere as long as they are eating. Do you really want to interrupt the flow of their playing and learning by expecting them to stop what they are doing and come to the table to eat? In that situation, they may choose not to eat, but to continue their activity instead going without, and wearing down their body, maybe slowing down their learning as their concentration fades with growing hunger and frustration. If one of your important goals is to support their learning, bringing food and drink to them in situations where they are fully engaged and eager to continue can be a great solution. If this seems like a hardship, take a moment to examine why. You're still making the food, just taking it a few steps further to another room. If you are concerned about leaving dirty dishes around, mention that. How about when your child next takes a break, go grab the dishes and ask for help bringing them back to the kitchen. If you're concerned about crumbs making a mess, have a brief conversation about that. Maybe you and your child will decide to eat a less crumbly snack or to place a towel on their lap for easier cleanup. There are always many options on the spectrum between yes and no If those involved, take a moment to brainstorm the possibilities. The idea is to match what truly needs to be done within the flow of the day's activities, not the other way around. This leads to another parenting area, chores. Again, what is your goal? If you as a parent decide what housework needs to be done and divvy it up between you and your children, what are they learning? They are working to meet your needs with respect to the home environment, not discovering their own. Often a child with chores will enthusiastically not do any house cleaning when first on their own. They need to get far away from the expectation before they can begin discovering what their own needs are in that area. Almost like rebounding from food restrictions, they are binging on the freedom of not having to tidy and clean. Instead, With the freedom to wait until they see a need to tidy or clean, and the freedom to say yes or no when asked to help out with a certain task around the house, children can discover their own preferences for their environment. Does their room look messy to outsiders, but your child knows exactly where everything is? Do they like to have everything in its place? Do they not mind the mess for a while, but are excited at the clean slate they see after you've tidied up? Through these experiences, they will learn how they like their surroundings, and as they grow up, they will likely help out to maintain it that way. I know as my children have gotten older, they will tend to their rooms as they best enjoy them. My eldest son likes everything in its place, and no messy area will last more than a few hours. My daughter doesn't mind the messy look, but when she's had enough, she will happily ensconce herself in a room for the day to tidy up, and my youngest son falls somewhere in between. However, general housework is the one area in which my children have received mixed messages, and it shows. Their dad will, from time to time, speak to them about expecting them to help out more around the house. The challenge with this is that it is often voiced as a generalized expectation. Because of this, as I have discovered in conversation with them, they are reluctant to help for a while after the request, even if they normally would, Feeling that the expectation has created a situation where helping out will be seen as an implicit agreement to continue helping out, that it might be interpreted by their dad as an act of admission that they have not been helping out enough. Here, helping out actually morphs from being a positive experience to an inadvertent admission of failure. And who wants to do that? That's the danger of expectations. They often backfire because the normal human response is to avoid fulfilling them completely. Think about a time when expectations were placed on you. How did you respond? I wonder how you would feel if your spouse said to you, I expect you to vacuum the house every week, or I expect you to have the dishes cleaned before you read your book. Even if you felt that once a week vacuum was reasonable, and you preferred to finish up the dishes and tidy the kitchen before settling into your book, it's likely you would loathe doing so now that someone is expecting it of you. Why? Because you are no longer choosing to do the task of your own volition. The sense of accomplishment has been taken away from you because now what you're accomplishing is the completion of your spouse's demand, not the task at hand. There's a yucky layer of expectation over the task that has marred the whole experience by taking the control out of your hands and giving it to another. Tying chores to allowances does essentially the same thing it sets up expectations by tying regular home tasks to rewards. On one hand, it sets up an unrealistic situation. When they move out on their own, they won't get paid for keeping their house. On the other hand, I want them to have a sum of their own money. Not to be continually withholding it as punishment. That sets up a layer of antagonism in our relationship with little gain. Again, with learning as my goal, I want them to have some money to explore and learn with. How does it feel to make that impulse buy? How satisfying is it to save up for that bigger purchase? What is the deal with quality versus price? Does it typically hold? Ah, marketing. When that advertisement convinces him to buy that high-priced toy, does he really get more satisfaction from it? Does name brand make a difference? Sure, I share my thoughts, but to really learn, they need to explore the consumer world to be hands-on, and better to do that growing up when the toys are much less expensive versus adult toys like big-screen TVs, cars, and fancy purses. And I'm around to discuss it all with them. Moving on out. At your spouse's work picnic, the conversation drifts to kids. Ray, one of the dads you just met, complains loudly. My kid is 16 and is so cranky. He won't get a job and he won't help around the house. When he turns 18, either he moves out or he starts paying rent. Then he'll know what the real world is like. Many of the other parents gathered around, nod their head in understanding and agreement. Preparing my kids for eventually moving out on their own is an important goal I see for myself as a parent. But the goal is not that my children move out as soon as possible. It is to have supported and help them gain the knowledge and skills that will help make the transition to living on their own as trouble-free as possible. I have come to realize that unschooling isn't exclusively about school or the replacement of school. Working toward graduation is too short-sighted because it only lasts 12 or so years of their life, at least the compulsory version. Unschooling is about life, about helping children grow as human beings from birth to adulthood. Growing up in an unschooling family, children are already experienced at making everyday choices from what, when, and where to eat to when, where, and how long to sleep. They will understand themselves and their needs and be able to communicate them to their friends, to their work colleagues, to their parents, and they'll have some experience living with their changing needs too. They will have lots of experience in learning on their own, understanding how they best learn new things, and will continue learning with joy and excitement, whether it's a personal interest or hobby or a new work-related skill. Before it seems too good to be true... Realize that unschooling doesn't protect anyone from life's challenges. Maybe your child is wishing for more friends, or feeling sad, or facing physical or emotional challenges. These aren't the exclusive domain of school kids. They are part of life, of living. But unschooling through these more difficult times has advantages. School demands and issues aren't piled on top of it all as well. And you are with your child to help them work through it as much as they need and want at any age. Unschooled young adults are comfortable enough with themselves to choose when they are ready to move out into the adult world. Not when the parent thinks they should move out, not as soon as it is legally possible to escape an overbearing home environment, but when they feel ready to take that next step. Years of respectfully being given the time and support to explore and learn in the world, to apply their growing life skills again and again in pursuit of experience and knowledge, to work through the challenges that life scatters in their path, helps them more successfully transition to life on their own. Or discover that they aren't quite ready and come back home for a while without shame. They know they have their parents' support as they navigate life. Children need the space and support to discover how they evolve with age and life experience. If they don't get the time to understand themselves and discover their dreams and passions growing up, they may need to take it as young adults, going off to find themselves. If they miss it then, they may just continue pursuing what they have been told will bring them happiness. The good job, the right car, the perfect family, and so on. Maybe they will manage to hang on for a couple more decades, though they may wear, as Dean Slider in Cinema Nirvana puts it, the drained, dispirited faces of silent adults, post-op cases who have already undergone the freedomectomy. Then the midlife crisis hits. Is this really what I want to do with my life? Am I really happy? Divorces, drastic career changes are all part and parcel of waiting until midlife to take the time to really know and understand yourself, what makes you tick, what brings you joy. The unschooling lifestyle, one where everyone in the family is considered a full team member regardless of age, where everyone is given space and respect to explore their personal needs for sleep, food, enjoyment, and their living environment, where everyone is free to learn gives each child a wonderful combination of knowledge, skills, and experience to move out into the world as an adult. Putting it all together. When I first came to unschooling, I concentrated on the concept of learning. That's what the school system was providing, right? So initially, my focus was on how my children would learn at home versus how they were learning at school. What I found was that when I looked at real learning, learning that was understood and remembered, the potential for it was much greater when living directly in the real world versus spending a large part of the day in a classroom learning from a simulated world. In Free to Learn, I have concentrated on sharing ways to support our children's real learning by looking at learning through the learner's eyes instead of a teacher's. By understanding that learning happens most successfully when the learner is interested and engaged. By realizing that learning how to make choices, rather than being told what choices to make, is a very useful life skill. By stopping to think as situations arise and discussing possible options together, rather than leaning on rules. And by understanding that everyone in the family has important needs and can have a voice without chaos ensuing. However, a couple interesting things happened along the way. As I was making these paradigm shifts, I uncovered an underlying theme. Trust. While living and learning together, I sometimes didn't understand my children's needs or wishes. Why was it so important to him to stay home yet again? Why did she not want to come play with the paints? It was during those moments that I most needed to remember the above points and trust that learning was still happening, even if I didn't grasp it in the moment. Just because I didn't understand the situation did not mean that it didn't have the same value for my child as a situation that was more transparent to me. So though I have focused on learning, I have also mentioned developing trust in various places. Having a high level of trust in your children does not mean that you leave them alone more. You are still living together, bringing fun and interesting things and ideas into each other's lives, chatting, discussing, and sharing. This level of trust and understanding of your kids and their lives will lessen your fear for your kids in general. And with this trust comes true respect, a deep sense of the inherent worth of your children, which I have found to be reciprocated in abundance. Once I had worked my way through these paradigm shifts, I understood that real learning was happening all the time, and I trusted their learning and choices, even when I didn't clearly see the connections myself. Through that deep trust in my children, I saw that they were living full and joyful lives, and soon came to the realization that focusing my parenting on completing my job while they are school-aged, was very limiting. We are a family and will continue to live and learn together throughout our lives, still connected even if we don't live under the same roof. And with no graduation date looming where they would celebrate having finished learning, I know their love of learning will not fade over time. Eventually, watching for learning dropped off my radar. And the true focus began to emerge, our relationships. Looking at unschooling through a relationship lens, it becomes quite clear that the paradigm shifts I underwent were also those that most improved our relationships. Try rereading Free to Learn with an eye to your family relationships and regularly ask yourself, would this help or hinder my relationship with my child? Also, I would like to repeat what I mentioned in the introduction. Don't just skim through the ideas, logical as they may seem on the surface. Really live with them. Let them ruminate in the back of your mind as you go about your day. Recall your own learning experiences, in school and out, and see how they compare. It will take work on your part to deeply understand these concepts and bring them into the everyday life of your family But it will be truly rewarding. Hold these ideas, these unschooling principles, in your mind throughout the day and examine them in light of your family. Observe how things happen now and consider how they may unfold if your actions were grounded in these ideas. As you dig deeper into the ideas I've been talking about, you will likely find yourself making choices that align more with your developing appreciation of real learning and living together. Remember to make these changes with the intention to move forward, not just to drop the mainstream paradigms. The shift to new paradigms is crucial or your children may feel abandoned and unsupported and alone in navigating life. I think you'll find that not only do these five ideas create an optimal learning environment for your children, living them also best supports the development of loving and respectful relationships with your children. And these amazing relationships will last a life. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the wonderful archive of earlier podcast episodes. The conversations never go out of date. And you can find more information about my books, my Patreon community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit at my website, livingjoyfully.ca. Have a great day.